Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from Chile, the United Kingdom, Brazil, the United States, and a see you in hell that is a celebration of a dead fascist, also from the United States. Starting out in Chile, this is actually a historical piece. A recent study released this week has found that Pablo Neruda, uh, Chile's dissident socialist poet and socialist senator, was indeed poisoned by the nascent Pinochet regime in 1973. Now, this has been an allegation that uh, Neruda's family has made for decades, uh, essentially since his death in 1973. At the time of the coup, Neruda had been planning to leave the country. He was going to live out an exile in Mexico, along with many other leftists in Chile who were trying to escape the vice grip of the military government. However, he died before he was able to get to Mexico. And because he was elderly, there was a question about whether or not he had died because of a poisoning or whether he had died because of complications with illnesses that he was experiencing. However, recent evidence now indicates that there was indeed a poisonous substance in Neruda's bones. And it is entirely possible also that this poison was obtained by the Chilean military from Brazil, which had already been under a military government for about a decade at the point of the coup in Chile. Presumably, the military committed this assassination in order to prevent him, that is Neruda, from being a potent symbol of Chilean power as an expat. Moving on to news in the United Kingdom, there was a massive mobilization this week against migrants in Liverpool in the United Kingdom. Hundreds of right-wing protesters arrived in order to harass a building that was hosting people who were seeking asylum in that country. Three people, that is three fascists, were arrested for throwing things at police officers. They set a police van on fire and repeatedly and extensively harassed anti-fascist protesters who were unfortunately vastly outnumbered at the protest. The group organizing the protest was linked to another group in the United Kingdom called Patriotic Alternative, although Patriotic Alternative has denied this claim. Patriotic Alternative was founded by Mark Collett, who was formerly the propaganda head of the British National Party, that is the BNP, which has long been one of the big mainstream British right-wing political organizations. Moving on to Brazil, this one sort of straddles Brazil and the United States. The president of Brazil, Lula, visited the United States earlier this week at the invitation of the United States' President Joe Biden. He was invited by Biden on January 9th, that is, the day after, like immediately after, the supporters of Jair Bolsonaro, the right-wing ousted president of Brazil, invaded the Brazilian Capitol buildings. This was a clear and intentional sign of solidarity from Biden, who, you know, lest we forget, also experienced a coup, an attempted coup by right-wing supporters who stormed a government building in order to try to prevent him from exercising his office as president. Now, in their official meetings and interactions with one another, they made a little bit of a point about this. You know, Lula talked about misinformation. Biden quipped that that was familiar. You know, they talked about defending democracy. The ostensible purpose of this meeting, however, was just, you know, that these are two incredibly important, powerful people, especially in the Americas, and that, of course, they were going to meet with each other anyway. But also, it was very clear to Lula that there was a, there was a political purpose to this meeting. You know, it wasn't just about, like, diplomatic stuff. Some of the political purpose was about protecting the Amazon, which is a big commitment on the part of the Lula administration. 
But the official position, the official statement by the United States government about Lula's visit was that it was about protecting, quote, democracy. However, Lula, in his statements, especially to United States journalists, was very clear. Uh, this was very clear, especially in an interview with Christine Amanapur uh, from CNN. Lula was clear that the threat to democracy is not some generic extremism or generic partisanship, but instead the right wing, specifically. Lula's answers to Amanapur's questions offer clearly internationalist thinking and a clearly internationalist approach to protecting democracy from the right wing, from people who want to stop democracy, who want to stop free, fair elections, from people who want to oppress others. He linked the rise of the right wing in Brazil and in the United States to the rise of the right wing in France and Hungary and Poland and other countries that are experiencing upticks in right wing power. He called out Germany, right? Like Lula is thinking about this on an international scale. He's thinking about this as a fight against the right wing for the future of democratic governance in the world. And that's the correct way to think about it. If you are looking for an example about how a an elected official who's just like following the rules and following the law and like not really rocking the boat extensively for how such a person can effectively fight the right wing, Lula is probably the person to look for in this case. Moving on to news that's just about the United States, the Super Bowl saw a bevy of ads that were explicitly Christian. The specific one that I'm talking about is one called He Gets Us. These ads feature a bunch of downtrodden members of U.S. society, and they link them to Christ's life. You know, that, that Jesus was born from refugees, that he was impoverished, you know, that he had difficulties in his life. This is an explicit attempt to rehabilitate the image of Christ in the minds of young people who are decreasingly religious and especially decreasingly Christian in the United States. And of course, there's something here, right? You know, that the story of Christ has often been one that poor and downtrodden people, especially in the Western world, have looked to specifically because of this sort of like liberatory message that it has. However, please do not be fooled. In this particular case, these particular ads, uh, the He Gets Us campaign, they're funded by right-wing Christian evangelical organizations. These organizations are anti-queer and they're connected to racist politics and to the GOP, right? These people are not like earnestly attempting to change how Christianity is practiced in the United States. They're not earnestly trying to change how evangelical Christianity relates to politics to make it more open or to make it, you know, more economically expansive. They are instead engaged in a PR campaign. So don't be fooled. Moving on to partisan politics in the United States, the first official challenge to Donald Trump's potential nomination as the Republican Party challenger in the 2024 election has been announced. This person is Nikki Haley. Other likely challengers such as Ron DeSantis have yet to announce. Uh, Haley is the first person other than Donald Trump to announce their candidacy for the Republican nomination in 2024. Haley, whose parents are originally from South Asia and of Sikh descent, made a name for herself as the governor of South Carolina. She's the former governor of South Carolina as a Republican, and also participated in the Trump administration as Donald Trump's ambassador to the United Nations. She claims that Donald Trump, like she called Donald Trump and talked to him about potentially running in the 2024 presidential primary for the Republicans, and that Trump said that she should run. Now, whether this was just 
you know, claiming that that was the case in order to save some face, or whether it is a more serious political machination is very important. So I think, and many other commentators agree, that probably this means that Trump actually does want her to run. She has been a longtime ally of Donald Trump's, and Donald Trump and his political machine have extremely good reasons to want there to be a lot of GOP challengers to him in the Republican primary race. Remember how well he handled the massive number of challengers in the 2016 Republican nomination challenge. He really mopped the floor with them. If he wants to try to repeat that kind of energy, if he wants to kind of repeat that, that, that fervor, he really needs that crowded field. He also definitely needs there to be a lot of other opponents in order to suck support away from potential, honestly, more likely Republican nominees like Ron DeSantis, for example. Continuing on with Donald Trump, information regarding Donald Trump and his White House's attempts to overturn the elections in Georgia, that is the 2020 presidential elections in Georgia, this information is going to be released publicly today. That is Thursday, the 16th of February, 2023. So I'm not reporting on it right now. I'll talk about it next week. If you want to learn about it, you should Google it right now. The information is probably out there. This could be serious indictment information. Like this could really seriously sink Donald Trump's situation and really hurt his candidacy. It could even potentially result in some criminal charges against Trump or some of his cronies. Alternately, it could be, you know, really underwhelming and not really lead anywhere. We're just going to have to see. Finally, a leader of the Proud Boys has gotten 2.5 months for his role in January 6th. This guy is named Jeffrey Finley. He was the leader of the West Virginia Proud Boys, sort of by fiat because there wasn't one when he wanted to join the Proud Boys and he was living in West Virginia, so he made the West Virginia chapter of the organization. He says that he didn't commit violence directly, but that he did enter the building, and that was the basis for him getting a relatively small sentence. So really, the circle is tightening around the members of the Proud Boys. A lot of them are getting criminal sentences, and a lot of them are suffering consequences for their activities. Finally, I'm going to close out this week, like I do every week, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. And this one is a little bit different. First of all, I'd like to thank Twitter user and listener Brennan for the tip on this one. I was going to miss this, so thanks, Brennan. Today, I'm talking about a guy whose real legal name is Teddy Von Newcomb. Now, this is a little bit of a different kind of person that I'm talking about. He's not an important player. He's a bit part. If you want to know who this guy is, Google the Tiki Torch March from the Unite the Right rally. The images that you'll pull up are, you know, of young white men carrying tiki torches marching at the Unite the Right Charlottesville rally in 2017. Remember this sort of like last gasp of the alt-right before it collapsed following the chaos that was this rally. But this was like a high point, this tiki torch march. In these photos, and you'll probably see like, like there are a couple prominent photos that are used all the time. There's a guy in a white polo shirt at the front with his mouth wide open in a big scream or a yelling chant. If you look just to his right, there's a guy in a black t-shirt, and that's Von Newcomb. So, Von Newcomb was born Ted Landrum in 1987. He was born in Phoenix, Arizona, but his family moved to sort of like fuck-all-nowhere, Missouri, a town called Lebanon, when he was young. 
He was apparently a good student, but had a youthful interest in Nazism, the far right, and World War II, which is, uh, you know, generally a bad sign when it comes to middle school white young men. In 2012, he legally changed his name to Von Newcomb, a reference to the irreverent, sexually violent, and, you know, sarcastic, acerbic video game character Duke Nukem, who was the star of a series of first-person shooters in the 1990s. Von Nukem later became enamored of the right-wing in general and actually joined and participated in right-wing political activities as he entered his adult life. He was also supposedly an anarcho-capitalist, but he also joined the Traditionalist Workers' Party, which was a neo-Nazi sort of attempt at a white power party that was like actually a party. You know, they were trying to win political elections. They actually stood for a couple small, you know, local offices like school board, county officials, stuff like that in Tennessee and Kentucky. The organization was led by a Matthew Heimbach. However, Von Newcomb later denied involvement in this organization. This was, of course, a lie because at the behest of the Traditionalist Workers' Party and the other right-wing people that he knew, Von Newcomb attended the Unite the Right rally in 2017, and he gained a lot of fame for his appearance in this most-used photo. Unlike what you might expect, you know, he was really excited about this. He was extremely proud of appearing in this photo and wanted to try to, to use it to launch his fame and power and importance in the right wing. Unfortunately for him, this actually proved his doom, right? You know, because the right wing really tanked after the Unite the Right rally, or at least the right wing that was existent uh, from 2015 up until that very day, 2017, because of the chaos that ensued after the Unite the Rights rally in Charlottesville. His attempt to maintain his fame for his appearance at the Unite the Right rally also led to him being connected to an assault on a black man, uh, which was committed in Charlottesville. This man is named DeAndre Harris, who was beaten up by a group of neo-Nazis and white nationalists and fascists in a parking garage in Charlottesville. It's become clear that Von Newcomb was involved in this assault. After Charlottesville, Von Newcomb had a sort of fall from right-wing circles, like a lot of the other militants who were there, and he ended up being a drug smuggler. He was arrested in 2021 at the U.S.-Mexican border with a massive quantity of fentanyl. He admitted to being a drug smuggler when he was questioned by the police, but denied knowing that he was smuggling fentanyl. He thought that he was smuggling some other drug, apparently. He was sentenced to appear in court on January 30th of this year, but before, or rather instead of attending his trial, he committed suicide in the backyard of his home behind his shed on January 30th. So he died January 30th of self-inflicted gunshot wounds. However, his death was only widely reported this week because people figured out who he was, you know, that he was this fascist figure. And so that is why I am reporting on him today. So, Teddy Von Newcomb, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. If you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 Minutes of Fascism. That's 15 Minutes of Fascism spelled out in all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 Minutes of Fascism at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Hist of the Right, that's H-I-S-T of the Right, and Fascism15. All right, thanks very much, and I will talk to you next week.